We're in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 through 17. Daniel in the lion's den. Most people are familiar with this. If you would, stand for reading of God's word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. And this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to the king, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps and counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree, and whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King, king Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew, that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Now, where are we? We're, the theme of, of Daniel is very clear, that God is sovereign over nations, God is sovereign over rulers, and God is sovereign over you, over your lives. Where we have been in the book of Daniel up to this point, there's going to be a picture that comes up on the wall. And what you're going to see, this is from Andy Wood's website. The next following couple pictures are from his website. This is the picture of the statue. Remember, gold, silver, bronze, iron legs, toes of clay and iron. This is a statue of human governments and how humans look at that government as wonderful and majestic and terrific. God looks at it as beast, as beast. He looks at it totally different. And we know that in the scripture that we went through in Daniel chapter 2, that a stone comes and crushes the kingdom. And that stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes jettisoned down crushes the kingdoms and pulverizes it, and Jesus eventually will establish his thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth. That's chapter 2. 
Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar decides he's all full of himself, and he decides to make a statue of himself, all gold from head to toe. He's, he's not going to relent any of the kingdoms to anybody else. He's making this statue. It's solid gold. He wants to rule forever. Anybody who doesn't bow to that statue, that idol, are going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And then we have our heroes, the only ones in the nation, when the music starts and everybody else bows, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow. And they say these terrific words that we hear in chapter 3, O king, bow, bow before the king, but O king, but let, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods nor were we worship the gold image which you have set up. Three out of the whole kingdom, three out of the whole kingdom would not bow. And then in chapter 4, we see the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. And God warns him by a dream that the watchers are going to take his kingdom away, and he's going to be cast out into the field for seven, seven times, and we decided it was seven years. And lo and behold, one year later, Nebuchadnezzar's walking on his palace walls. And he's bragging about how terrific his kingdom is. And then God initiates the action, and he goes and grazes for seven years. And finally, at the end of that time, he repents and realizes that the Most High God reigns. Belshazzar is the last ruling king in, in Babylon. And he is arrogant, and he is haughty, and he throws a great big party. And he's celebrating that... Cyrus, though Cyrus is taking over all the kingdoms around, he can't get into Babylon because Babylon's walls are thick and its walls are high and they have a water supply and they have a food supply for 20 years. They cannot get in here. And so he's, God writes on the wall, many, many take up Saron. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. The kingdom is going to be divided. And lo and behold, he's scared to death when he sees the writing on the wall. Boom, writing comes right on the wall. He's afraid of that. Daniel gives him the interpretation, and now he's all full of himself knowing that, hey, this must not apply to me. It's not going to be divided on my watch because look how much protection we have with this kingdom. And the river is diverted. The Euphrates River is diverted. Cyrus comes right in, and that night his soul was required of him. Chapter 6, we talk about the lion's den. And the whole title last time was, The handwriting was on the wall, and some people just don't see it. The handwriting's on the wall for America. People just don't see it. If you're living a life that is contrary to God, the handwriting is on the wall, and people just won't see it. Now, we also mentioned that we are expected to realize what's coming up, and we study Bible prophecy so that we have an inkling of what's going to happen. Now, let me just preface my, th this, this prophecy thing with this. Nobody knows exactly how this is going to play out. We have some guidelines. We have some, some things that we should be looking for. We shouldn't be caught off guard. But nobody has this all tied up in a little bow, although they might think they do when you listen to them. Nobody knows because there's brilliant people that look at this from different perspectives. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Well, he, God expects us to have a clue, to have a clue. So the handwriting is on the wall. The thing that we want to do is this, stay on the path. We have all this stuff distracting us, all this stuff pulling us away, all these voices that are contrary to God. And so we have the picture that is going to come up about the path. And I love this picture. This is each individual. Notice you go towards God. It is you and God. When you get to heaven and stand before God, it's going to be you and God. It's not going to be the team. 
It's not going to be your mommy, your daddy, your sisters, your brothers, your aunts, your uncles, your grandmas or grandpas. It's going to be you. So you're on your path towards God. Now, you do have other people that are helping you, but ultimately you stay on the path. Jesus said this, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. And narrow is the gate. Narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Few. You're the vast minority. The vast minority. The majority are going through the wide gate. The minority are going through the narrow gate. Now this week we're going to be talking about Daniel in the lion's den, part one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. And Holy Spirit, please do your work within each one of our hearts. Help us to hear from you today. It doesn't matter what I have to say. It matters what you say to us through your word. So speak to us, Lord, words of truth. And may we learn and apply what you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of introduction, where we are in history, I would just want to assure, just, just give you a demonstration of the amazing accuracy of the Bible. Now, Judah has been 70 years of captivity, and it ends with Belshazzar's death. 70 years of captivity, this guy dies, Cyrus takes over, and then God's going to work in the heart of Cyrus. 70 years. Remember, it was, for, it was God's hand of discipline for idolatry. The nation kept going back to serve the Baals and serve the Ashtoreths, to turn away from the living God towards these false gods. And they had a failure to keep a land Sabbath for 490 years. And God's serious about when he tells his people to do something. He says, okay, you're not going to keep the land Sabbath on your own. I will get the Sabbath out of you. For 70 years, you will go into captivity. And that is what they did. Jeremiah 29.10 says this, For thus says Jehovah, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, Babylon, not, not Persia, it ends when Persia starts, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah 29.10, and he did. He fulfilled his good word. So God's promise is that the captured Judah would be restored. Isaiah 44.28 gives us some clarification on this. Now, I want you to hear this. Now, please, I've mentioned these verses before, but right now, just really take them in. This is written way before, but 44.28 says this, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? And he shall perform all of my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar came in, he levels the temple, he levels the city, and, he's, and, and God is saying, Cyrus, you're going to rebuild my city. And, to, and temple, your foundation shall be laid. And in 45.13, we read these words. God is saying this. You talk about who's in control. God's in control. I have raised him up, speaking of Cyrus, in righteousness. And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. Cyrus doesn't have a choice. The God of heaven says, you're going to build it, and that's exactly what he does. Let my ex and let my exiles go free, not for price or reward. Nobody's going to pay you off for this, Cyrus, says the Lord of hosts. You're going to do it because God is directing you to do it. So, who's in charge? God's in charge. That's one thing we want to remember. Who's in charge? God's in charge. God's promise that the, that the captured Judah would be restored. Now, I want to give you a picture here of the three returns of Judah. Again, this is Andy Wood's work. Any, anytime you see anything that's really neat like this, it is not me, okay? It is not me. Okay, first return, second return, third return. 
Zerubbabel returns and he, he rebuilds the temple. Remember Zerubbabel? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. He's, he's lamenting that his temple is so pathetic compared to Solomon's temple. And God says, oh no, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, Zerubbabel. You're accomplishing what I want you to accomplish. There's a second return, and very few go back. And there's a third return where Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. If you read the book of Nehemiah, it's a great teaching on leadership and persistence and, and how to accomplish a task in a very short period of time. Those are the three returns. Now, I want you to think about something. Did Cyrus, now people will always question this, did Cyrus really let the people go back as the Bible says? Did he really do it? Does history verify this, or is it just written in the Bible, like the Bible doesn't matter? Let me tell you, the Bible matters. Uh, uh, listen to this. Lo and behold, a cylinder of Cyrus was discovered in 1879, and it's housed in the British Museum. Now, you'll see it on the screen. Watch this. This is, this is Babylonian writing, okay? Aramaic writing. Now, what this is saying is the following. Now, this is again discovered. Uh, it says this, the Cyrus Cylinder. On this cuneiform cylinder, Cyrus recorded his capture of Babylon and his program of repatriating the conquered people to their homeland, sending their people home. And he not only sent the people home to their homelands, he also sent the utensils from the temple, which were all gold, back to the people, to, to, to God's people. So, this is the statement I want you to remember. This is only a God thing. Only God can orchestrate this. Now hear this, 150 years before this occurred, Isaiah prophesied it. 150 years. People who are against the Bible say, oh, this is all contrived. Oh, no. Oh, no. You cannot... You cannot invalidate what this scripture says and how, how, how it just points to the truth of the validity of scripture. Isaiah says, the book of Isaiah says, Cyrus, Cyrus is named. He lets the people go back to Jerusalem just like the Bible said. Now, let me ask you the question. Who's in charge? God's in charge. That's right. Good A. You got an A for that. Very nice. Now, did, the, did, the, did Cyrus let the people go because he was a nice guy? Well, he's just so nice. He's like, oh, go back to your homes. And By the way, take the temple stuff. It's all gold. You can just take it with you. Oh, no. It was God moving the king's heart. Josephus says this. He's a Jewish historian. Now, he's not a Christian, by the way, but he says this. He says, he indicated that Daniel influenced Cyrus with the prophecy of Isaiah. The, the, the king knew that God of Israel was with him. He showed him Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 5, and probably verse 13. You, Cyrus, are this person. 150 years ago, God said, you're going to do this. So what does Cyrus do? Yes, I'm going to do this. Who's sovereign? God is sovereign. Who's in charge? God. Now remember this, when the world around you starts to spin out of control. God's in charge. God's in charge. Daniel's world is about to come out of control. In verses 1 through 3, he starts out with favor. Everything is great and everything is wonderful. Let's start with verses 1 through 3. It pleased Darius. Just a side note here. Darius, I, I believe, and I'm going to take this view of it, is, is Cyrus. 
Darius is like, uh, like Pharaoh would be a title. Some people look at Darius as being a title. Cyrus would be the person. Other people look at this person as being uh, a guy named Gubaru or someone named Ugbaru. Now, you can think he's there. Those are the people. Just for our teaching, it's going to be Cyrus. Okay? So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So there's a structure to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now that is a problem. Now listen, let's, let's develop this a little bit. Now why does Daniel have favor with Cyrus? And I would suggest to you there's two parts to this. It's not on the overhead. It's not in your notes. So just listen to me. Number one is God's part. He moved in the heart of the king. He's orchestrating things behind the scenes. But number two, Daniel does his part and believes God and is faithful to God. He has an excellent spirit. Notice in that verse, he has an excellent spirit was in him. The man of God was favored by God and had an excellent spirit. Now, how does that translate? To me, it translates into an excellent attitude and a wonderful countenance, a wonderful disposition, and the king took notice of him over all these other big shots in the kingdom. Now, the people, I want to suggest to you, people notice a great attitude. People notice an excellent spirit. People take note of an excellent spirit and a great attitude and repel and repel from a negative spirit or a negative attitude. I have shared with you in the past four things for success from the Benham brothers. One of those was be a fountain, not a drain. Pour into people instead of sucking life out of people. That helps you to be successful. That is what Daniel did here. Either you're going to be a life enhancer or you will be a life drain. Your attitude plays very much into this. John Maxwell, in his book, Attitudes 101, writes this. And he's speaking to leaders. And I want to suggest everyone in here is a leader of something. You're a leader of your kids. You may be a leader at work. You might be a, a father and a leader of your family. You might have a church position. It says this, as a leader, you cannot ignore the attitudes of the people you lead and expect to achieve success, whether you're leading a business, a family, a sports team, or a group of volunteers. A person's attitude impacts their relationships, colors their view of failure, defines their approach to success. Attitude can make or break a person. Your attitude, and you choose it. Please note this. A positive attitude can be cultivated, regardless of what has happened in your background. And a lot of bad stuff happens to people. And people carry that baggage all through their life with a negative attitude. No, we can, we can break away from that. A negative attitude can be changed. The choice to change starts with you. You must make a decision to change. And if we were going to go on with this attitude and that sort of thing, I would have developed that. But I just want you to know, Daniel had a great attitude, and the king noticed it. It is important in our culture that we have a great attitude because we serve a king that is great, greater than any king. We, have a we should have a great attitude. Now, notice this. Daniel had a great spirit, great attitude, though awful things happened in Daniel's life. I don't know if you remember this or not, but at age 15, he was taken captive in the first wave in 603 B.C. 
by Nebuchadnezzar, taken back to Babylon. He lost his home. He lost his culture. He lost his friends. He lost his parents. He probably had his brothers and sisters were probably killed. He lost everything. And once he got into the kingdom, at different phases, he was hated by people within the kingdom. He was forgotten by people in the kingdom. But yet he maintained, at 80 years old where he is now, a great spirit, a great attitude that Cyrus noticed. Now that speaks to us. That speaks to us. People take notice of a great attitude. Now, Daniel is about to get promoted. Watch this. There was a structure in Babylon. Notice this is the structure that exists at this time. Darius is the king. He has governors here, the commissioners, and then satraps. Now, the proposed thing, what the king is thinking, Daniel is promoted, and he's second to Cyrus, second to Darius in charge. That is going to cause a little bit of an issue. So let's develop that just a little bit further. Daniel has favor with God. He has favor with men. Can you anticipate the problem? What do you think is going to happen to these guys? It's going to be jealousy. Jealousy raises its ugly head. Not everyone is going to be thrilled with Daniel's promotion. And let me suggest to you, not everyone is thrilled when you're promoted. You realize that, don't you? Not everyone's thrilled with that. Oh, no. Jealousy raises its ugly head. They may be offended. And what is the feeling when someone gets promoted? It should have been me. I'm way better than that dude. Yes. People want the limelight. People want their time. Jealousy. Be ready. Verses 4 through 9. The plot against Daniel is this. A jealous plot to destroy Daniel. Verses 4 through 7. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps, the counselors, the advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree. And who is left out of that, of those all? Daniel. He's not agreeing with this, I can tell you that much. That whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing so it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So, jealousy raises its ugly head. And I want, to think, I want you to think about something. Think about Jesus and think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very concerned about Jesus. Listen to these words in John chapter 11, verse 47. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered, gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone's going to follow him. We're going to be left out. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And oh no, we're going to lose our position. They're jealous of Jesus. They're jealous of losing something. That's what jealousy is, by the way, losing what you have. 
They try to find a charge against Daniel, just like they tried to find a charge against Jesus, and they couldn't at his trials. Daniel is faithful to his God. Daniel is faithful to his king. Daniel is faithful to his position. Daniel is faithful in his job. And these guys can't stand it. They can't find anything against Daniel. Now, how would you stand up to that scrutiny? Just ask yourself that question. Daniel's life of honor and faithfulness starts with God. If that's in order, then other things will follow. The plotters find no problem with Daniel's life, and what do they want to do? They want to attack his God. It's a common tactic of the enemy, is to attack your faith, attack your core beliefs. And again, remember the baker, remember the florist. Both of them refuse to bow to cultural pressure. Refuse to bow to cultural pressure. Their conscience would not allow them to bow. And now none of these people were refused service. If you wanted to come in and have a cake for anything else or a cookie for anything, you, could, you had the service. There was no discrimination there. But when you came in delineating that it was for something that was against God's order, then they had to stand. They had to say, no, we can't do that. Yet because of their beliefs, they, the plot was established and these people came in specifically at them, knowing that they're Christians, in order to have their plot fulfilled and get this to go to their Supreme Courts of Colorado and Washington. Now, the one in Colorado went to the Supreme Court of America and was overthrown. The one in Washington went to the Supreme Court of, of Washington, went to the Supreme Court, was sent back to Washington on appeal, told them to reevaluate based upon the Colorado finding, and they, the full majority of the Washington Supreme Court voted against the florist. So now that will have to go back to the Supreme Court. So the homosexual agenda demands full capitulation to their lifestyle or nothing. We've gone through this. We just talked about this. This type of thing will present itself to each one of us in some form or another, whether it's that agenda or somebody, something else. There's always going to be this, this tension to want you to compromise your faith, to bow before the culture. The line has been drawn. Bow to the culture's mores, values, idols, gods, or be faithful to the true God. That's going to happen with each one of us. That's all part of our journey called life. It's all through the history of Christendom. It doesn't stop with, with powder puff Christianity America. You know, we're going to start becoming men and women of iron up our backs. The true church is going to have to stand up, and it's going to stand out. It's going to stand out. It's not going to blend. It's not going to be a blendy church. So, question is this, will you fall in line with everyone else? Remember Judges 21-25? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Are you going to fall in line with that, or are you going to be like Joshua? No matter what may come, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's, that's the lines are drawn. So, the plot, appeal to the king's pride. Attack Daniel's God, attack Daniel's beliefs. That's, the, that's what's going on here. Daniel determined in his heart long ago to be a God follower, not a cultural compromiser. Determine that. We have to determine that. Are you going to be a God pleaser or are you going to be a man pleaser? That's the question. It's a question for every believer. Will I follow Jesus or will I compromise? Will I blend? Will I cave? Or will I be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's going to be the question each one of us has to deal with. No jealous cultural plot would cause the man of God to compromise. 
He stood no matter what. And it didn't matter to Daniel if they took a poll in Babylon or in Persia. It didn't matter to him where they took a poll and where the, where the populace fell in this. It mattered what his God said. So don't fall for the, everyone's doing it. Everyone, we took a poll and all the churches in, in America are just embracing this thing. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Verses 10 and 11, when the storm hits, pray, don't panic. This is the prayer of Daniel. When the storm hits, pray, don't panic. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, and he knew it, he knew exactly what these guys were conspiring. He went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Daniel wasn't going to change, folks. Daniel is an example of no compromise, no panic in the face of compromise, no going along to get along. Daniel is going to do something that I think everyone wants to do as a Christian, and that is leave a legacy. Leave a legacy of a, as a man of God or a woman of God. I follow God no matter what. C.T. Studd says this in his poem, Only one day will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Men and women of God alike leave a legacy of faithfulness. All the way to the end, not three quarters of the way. Remember, it's a, it, we're going to the end of this thing. Daniel heard the edict. Daniel knew what was at stake. And Daniel prayed. And Daniel went home with his windows opened, as they always were, and he prayed towards Jerusalem, and he was a setup. They, these guys knew that he would do it, and they caught him doing it. Now listen, what the culture does not understand, it just can't get this. The Bible determines what is wrong or right for the Christ follower. Not the cultural norms, not the cultural mores. Look, no one wants to be hassled. No one wants to be looked at and, and, and be ostracized, cast out, or persecuted. Daniel did not look forward to the lion's den. He's not going, oh, goody, I get to go be eaten by lions. This is, I, I can guarantee you that was not his posture. But he knew something that Peter knew. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. Now, look, at the Christian has a mandate to obey the government. We should be the best citizens of the land. Romans 13, 1 and 2, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, this was written by Paul when Roman Caesars were in control and murdering and killing Christians. That's when it was written. Now, we must obey government unless, you know the caveat, don't you? Yes, you do. Unless the government requires us to disobey God's word, then we cannot. They don't understand we cannot. We cannot do this. This is not an option for us. Look at Exodus 1.17. Pharaoh gave a command to kill the babies. Remember that? Kill the babies. These Hebrews are, are producing too much. Kill the baby boys. 
the Hebrew midwives feared God greater than they feared Pharaoh, and they did not carry out that edict. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were being forced to bow, and they would not bow. We're going to serve our God. They feared God more than they feared Nebuchadnezzar's fire. And Peter, if he didn't stop talking, he was going to be thrown into prison again. Peter says, oh, no, I have to obey God rather than men. Are going to be a God follower or a man follower? You're going to fear God or you're going to fear man? When the storm hits, pray, don't panic. When the storm hits, pray, don't panic. Now, 12 through 15, the plot to prosecute Daniel. It's in full force. 12 through 15. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, this is heartbreaking for this king, that Daniel, notice there's a, almost a prejudicial tone here, that Daniel, who is one of the captives, the guy's 80 years old, they haven't forgotten he's a captive, from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes this petition three times a day. And watch the king's response. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself, set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till, he, till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. We have you, king. You have to do this. The plot to kill Daniel, to eliminate him, is in full force. Now, what we do know, what we do know about these people that want to prosecute Daniel, they're jealous of Daniel, they hate Daniel, they're, they hate Daniel's God, and they saw Daniel as a threat, and they're going to tattletale on him. The king's response is this, he does not want to go through with this. He's greatly displeased with himself. It wasn't like Babylon. In Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar could change his mind. He could do whatever he wanted. But in Persia, the structure was set. There was a king. There was things under him. There was a government more in place that was disseminated instead of just centralized. And he had to obey the edict. It was the way they ran things there. In verse 14, he was greatly displeased with himself. He labored to free Daniel. And I want to ask you this. How often do we feel greatly displeased with ourselves? You know, we go through life and we make mistakes, folks. We make mistakes, and some of them are big mistakes, some of them are little mistakes, but I guarantee you everyone in this room has at some point been greatly displeased with themselves. I have not acted or I have not done, or I have not said, or I have whatever, what I wish I would have said or done. You fall into the pride trap, the jealous trap, the flattery trap, the eye trap. He set his heart to deliver him, labored till going down to the sun. The plot setters can smell the blood in the water in verse 15. And please note this, the king panicked, but Daniel didn't. The king, the king is in a tizzy, but not Daniel. Look, when the world prosecutes you, when the world comes against you, attacks you, impugns your character, oh, you intolerant haters, think about Daniel. And think about Jesus. It's not uncommon. Remember Jesus said in John uh, 15, 18, if the world hates you, 
Know that it hated me before it hated you. Know this. Why could Daniel stand? Why can we stand? Why can we do that? Well, he had determined in his heart long ago in 1.9, the Lord was with Daniel in 6.22, and he is with you. Daniel had a different spirit. Daniel had a different attitude. And I would suggest to you that each one of us that have been born again of the Spirit can change the way we are, change the way we were, and be transitioned into something different if we yield to the Spirit of God. Daniel had a different spirit. He, his spirit was, I'm going to trust the Lord no matter what. I will trust the Lord until I die. I'm going to trust him. I don't understand what's going on here, but I'm just going to trust him. Daniel did not fear, fear the king. Daniel did not fear the people. He did not fear their plots. Proverbs 9.25 says this, Fear of man is a snare, but those who trust in the Lord will be kept safe. Daniel did not, and finally this, this is, this is kind of significant. Daniel did not use his age as a reason to retreat. He's 80 plus years old, and he wants to finish well. I want to suggest something to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the last part of that says this, let us run with endurance the race set before us. How do we do that? Looking onto Jesus, focused on Jesus. Remember the light. Focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It goes on to say, who for the joy set before him, that was his race, endured the cross, despising its shame. And now he sits on the right hand of God the Father. We all have a race, folks. And every race is different. My race is not your race. Your race is not my race. It's, we're all different. And it's not up to me to judge your race. Hey, you're a little slow. I can't believe you're way behind me. Or I can't judge you because, oh, you think you're so fast and you're way ahead of me. No, your race is your race. My race is my race. We all have our race. But what we do have in common in this race is this. Folks, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. We are to run with endurance the race set before us. What does that mean? No quit. No quit. You know, when a, when a marathoner hits the wall at 20 miles, everything in their body is screaming, quit, stop, I'm going to die if you don't quit. Oh, no. You burst through the wall and you keep going. We have an attitude of we will not quit. And Jesus is also... It says that he's the author and finisher of our faith. He authored it. He began it. And folks, if he began it, he began a work in you. We'll carry it unto completion to the day of Christ Jesus, says in Philippians chapter 1. He will get you home. Jesus will finish your, your race. He will finish your faith. Get you across the finish line. Now look, some of us are going to go across the finish line, bursting through. We're going to just burst through the finish line. Yay! And some of us are going to get to the finish line and just barely make it. But get across the finish line. Get across the finish line. At the end of your life, you can say with Paul, now, if you have heard my teaching, this will be like the 12,000th time you heard this verse. But you're going to hear it again. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, Paul says this. At the end of your life, you want this said about you. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That's the final offering after the burnt offering and the grain offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. Just apply that to your life. I don't care if you're 18 or 12 or 90. Apply it to your life. 
You don't know when you're going to be going. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but he gives a promise to each one of us. To also to all who have loved his appearing. We can't, if you are a Maranatha person, which means even so come Lord Jesus, guess what? You get a crown. You get a crown. It's the crown of righteousness. A reward. Folks, when you, are, when you are prosecuted for your faith, know that God will get you to the finish line. Folks, we're almost home. We're on the home stretch. We're almost there. Keep running. Don't give up. Don't get distracted. Stay towards the light. Remember the picture, the light. Stay on the path. In verse 16 through 17, and we'll be through. Daniel had no regrets. And he had a proponent. He had someone on his side, and that was the king. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually. Wouldn't you like someone to say that about you? Who you serve, not sporadically. Not, oh, they served him, and they just, you know, continually. He will deliver you. Then a stone was brought, laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. And these satraps and these commissioners and governors are just having a party. I bet they went and had a party in their house. But the king didn't. We'll see that next week. The king didn't. But notice this. Daniel's spirit and attitude, his countenance, his witness to the true God affected this heathen king to the point that this heathen king says, your God, whom you serve continually, Daniel, he will deliver you. He's trying to give encouragement to Daniel. It might be false encouragement, which we'll see in the verses next week. But he's trying to give his friend encouragement. Now, the king didn't know what would happen. See, we know. We read ahead. Daniel didn't know what would happen. What you see in Daniel, and when he didn't know what would happen, you see no self-pity, no plea for release, no poor me, no screaming. It's a plot. It's a plot, king. It's a plot. It's a big plot. No, he didn't do that. No why me, and none of this. Really, Lord? eaten by lions. Is this how I get to go out? I mean, is this going to be it? I mean, yeah, you don't see any of that with him. No prayer to be released. He's no fear. You know why? What you see in Daniel, you see a total trust in God no matter what. He had no regrets for his life. Remember William Borden? No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. In the back of his Bible before he died, he had those words written. And it said, no reserves. He held nothing back. That was Daniel's life. He held nothing back. No retreats, no quitting, no matter what he finished. No regrets for a life dedicated to God. You see a total trust in God no matter what. No regrets. And remember this. We shared this last time. The essence of faith is a willingness to serve God without a guarantee. That's faith. That's real faith. Daniel had no regrets. In conclusion, Daniel and the lion's den, part one. Like Daniel, life can look great, can it? It can look wonderful. Job's going well. Just graduated from college. I had some cum laude, summa luma, whatever it is. 
I graduated at, at the top, promotions, prestige, favor, got good bosses are, are great, your finances are great, your marriage are great, your kids are great, they're all A's, you go to the parent-teachers conference and they're just glowing, they're just glowing. And then something in the universe changes. And you get hit right between the papers. Your coworkers don't like you. There's accusations, demotions, pay cuts, loss of status. Your marriage starts to struggle. Your kids start to go off. They get to be about 12. They start to go off. They come back at some point, but they will go off. Our tendency is to cry out, and we know we all do it. Why God? Why me? Why now? And then we ask this question, which I think is something that you have to be really careful about. What did I do wrong? And oftentimes, the people in your life around you will look at you because of what you're going through and say, what did they do wrong? Be very careful with that, because that's what Job's friends did. Remember? That's what Job's friends did. Our lives are full of twists and turns. This is reality. This is life in a fallen world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Amendigo can attest to, that, attest to that. Twists and turns. Daniel can. Job certainly could, and you can. How we respond to life's challenges, shocks, how we live it out will be determined by how we are dwelling in Christ. How well are we really dwelling, making our home? Remember the word was menno. Went over it like a million times. Menno, dwelling, making our home in Christ. Are we really doing that or are we pretending? Daniel knew that God is sovereign, that God is in control, through the good, the bad, and the ugly. Job knew it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and hopefully you know it. Whether in the furnace, whether in the lion's den, whether, whether you have boils from head to toe like Job, this must have been awful. And then you hear from your beloved helpmeet, your wife, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? That had to be his lowest point. His lowest point. Our God will never leave us nor forsake us. When you are in the lion's den of who knows what, God knows exactly where you are. Trust that he knows. Keep going. Keep driving on. I want to close with this example from the hiding place. Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy. In the midst of the movie The Hiding Place, there is a scene set in Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy are there, along with 10,000 other women, in horrible, degrading, hideous conditions. They are gathered with some of the women in the barracks in the midst of the beds, cold and hungry, lice-ridden, and Betsy is leading a Bible study. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now, one of the other women calls out derisively from her bunk and mocks their worship of God. They fall into a conversation. What this woman says and what we hear so frequently flung at Christians, if your God is such a good God, why does he allow this kind of suffering? Now, that's touched each person in here. We think of that. Dramatically, she tears off her bandages, off her hands, displaying her broken, mangled fingers and says, I'm the first violinist of the Sympathy Orchestra. Did your God will this for me? For a moment, no one answers. Everybody's in stunned silence. Then Corey Den Tenboom steps up to, beside her sister and says, we can't answer that question. Now, she's honest, okay? 
All we know is that our God came to this earth and became one of us, and he suffered with us and was crucified and died for us. Jesus knows where you are, and one day he knows you'll be home with him, safe forever. The lion's den is not unique. Every one of us will have some sort of lion's den experience. How you face the lion's den with God's strength, that is unique. That is different. That the world may know that we have been with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. As always, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are our teacher. That you implant into each one of us different things in the teaching. You've spoken to each heart that's here. That's how you work. And now help us to really heed what you've told us. Lord, I just ask you to do your work in each one of us. Lord, I know that there's a need for healing. I ask that you heal spirits. Daniel could have went through his whole life with regrets. He had a healed spirit because he stayed close to his God. May our spirits be healed because we trust in you, the living God, and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the teaching on Daniel. Thank you for how you are opening our eyes to, to more of a vastness of who you are, to your sovereignty, to your faithfulness, that you are with us through everything. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you, Lord, for your provision. Thank you, Lord, for your protection. In Jesus' name, amen.